0: Welcome to the Advancing Dentistry Podcast. Join us for in-depth discussions from industry-leading dental experts speaking on hot topics in their specialties.
1: Thank you for listening to our Advancing Dentistry Podcast. This is Dr. Stephen John, your host for this presentation. This is the last of a three-part podcast series addressing peri-implantitis. In our last two podcasts, we explored the prevalence and etiology of peri-implantitis. In this podcast, we'll discuss some treatment options and some possible treatment, future treatment modalities. My guest again is Dr. Sam Lau, culinary chef extraordinaire. Thanks, Sam, for being here.
0: Well, thank you, Steve. Again, um, welcome to the audience as we conclude our three-part series on the ever-interesting topic of implantitis.
1: And it sure is. So I am sure that our listeners are hoping to get the holy grail of the best treatment or best way to treat peri today, um, and hopefully we'll be able to address many of the questions that they have. I personally find that uh, in the main kind of uh, focus of my treatment planning is kind of defining the etiology of the condition and then treatment planning from there. So if you don't mind, I'd like to start our discussion with kind of a, discussing treatment options for the early placement issues. Then we'll progress to the six-month to two-year issues, then the uh, two-year to five-year problems, and finishing up with our five-plus-year breakdown. Um, Sam, you oftentimes mention the ailing versus failing implant. Can you please explain the difference to our uh, listeners?
0: Uh, Sure, and I may have mentioned this prior, but... I always believe that the ailing implant is when I place it and the failing implant is when you place it, Steve. <laughs> uh, but I, the, in a way I'm being facetious, but in another way uh, I do believe that ailing or failing is totally dependent upon in the eyes of the beholder. The, um, if you say ailing, that means that you can potentially reverse it. If you say failing, that's just a perception. And you do see, um, and I think it's appropriate to bring up that you know we just recently had the American Academy of Periodontology meeting, and a major, major topic at that meeting was implantitis. And when you look at the uh, conversations. They were really all over the board. Uh, you know if you have uh, one thread exposed, what do you do? two threads exposed, what do you do? Three threads exposed, what do you do? And then also what you've suggested uh, as far as time frame, uh, six month to two year, two to five year, and then after five year. I think what also though we're seeing, and we'll discuss this, I'm sure when we talk about therapy, is that many of us were taking implants out that we thought that were failing. And what we're seeing now, especially with the advent of lasers, is a much more conservative approach. Now, there is no doubt that when one looks at the oral surgery profession, uh, they are much more inclined to remove an implant, I think, than periodontists are. Although, you know, let's face it, some. oral surgeons are very conservative, some periodontists are more radical. But if I have noted in the the last couple of years, we're trying to hang on to these implants more than ever. So I think it's just really your perception of what is ailing or failing because there's not a lot of evidence out there about when do you interact, intervene when you're seeing uh, implant disease.
1: Wow. Very good point. Um, So, Sam, um, a good portion of our discussion today is going to involve the introduction of uh, laser therapy, as you just mentioned, to the treatment of uh, peri-implantitis. So, with laser therapy, it's mostly about addressing the inflammatory process and also about kind of creating an optimal implant surface for the possibility of stability, maintenance, and even the possibility of regeneration. Um, so if you don't mind, can you please um, briefly explain to our listeners the different uh, different types of lasers out there and the pros and cons when it comes to implant therapy? And this, I think, is
0: probably uh, the most important component of it all. And that is the laser wavelength. And yes, there is going to be significant controversy depending upon what laser you own and from the companies. It really comes down to the fact that you want two things. And both of those things I think are very important when we look at the FDA. The, the thing that the FDA cares about in whether it be device or medicament is safety and efficacy. When it comes to different wavelengths uh, relative to those scenarios, there are some of us that truly believe that one must be incredibly cautious on using a diode around any implant. Now, could you uh, take a diode laser and put it on like zero point four point five 0.5, uh, pulsed, and yes, and keep it away from the implant? Sure. Would it have an effect? I doubt it. However, if that diode becomes initiated, which over time it may, if there's any hemorrhage, then all of the thermal energy will then find itself in that blob at the end of your tip, activate the tip, and the heat energy will be absorbed into that pigment. And then therefore you could end up with a thermal uh, issue. The next I would put in there would be the IndyAG. yag This even has more controversy. But in all fairness, initially, when individuals were talking about using the NDAG for decontamination of implant surface, if I now fast forward three or four or five years, you see many periodontists who use an NDAG, you will not see them put that on a implant surface uh, like they were in the past. And that's primarily because of the thermal conductivity of an NDAG. If we jump back, a diode and an indiag primarily work off of thermal. A erbium primarily works off of photoacoustics. We do everything in our power not to have heat with a um, erbium laser, and anything more than five degrees centigrade, uh, we don't we don't enjoy whether it be an in vivo test or an in vitro test. And much of this work has been done by uh, George Romanos at Stony Brook. And then when we pop up to our CO2s, uh, this totally depends upon what CO2 that you're discussing. Uh, If you're talking about a 10600, there you need to be much more cautious, I believe, than if you're talking about a 9300. So in my mind, however, when you look at all of the cross-functional studies that have been done, if you're using the correct wavelength with the appropriate amount of water, it is the Erbium wavelength that by far uh, complies with being safe and at the same time being efficacious.
1: You know, it's, I, I have completely agree. matter of fact, it's interesting because the next portion of our discussion is gonna come down to you know, the whole idea of at what point in time are we developing the problem with our implants. And I think a lot of it comes down towards is um, for the adjunctive laser therapy is, is choosing the, uh, the proper uh, laser for that particular type of treatment. Um, and um, ultimately, at least for me, I know that the Erbium Chromium YCG is kind of more or less the all around versatile uh, laser for, for most of my treatments. Um, and I do, I know that you are a huge fan of dual wave therapies as so as I am. So a lot of times I think that the idea of, of taking the diode with uh, pain management and uh, um, photobiomodulation uh, as an adjunct really helps out too. So maybe as we go along further on discussion, we can kind of address those issues. So let's go ahead and talk about the, I guess I would end up saying the, the early problems. In other words, that the, uh, that you soon after placing the implant, you start to see either the, the implant isn't osteointegrating um, or you tend to see like some, uh, some slight exudate around the implant itself. The tissues just don't look very good. Uh, you may have some stability of the implant. You may have a little bit of mobility with it. Um, so the question is, is it, is it gonna be able to osteointegrate? Is it not gonna be able to osseointegrate? And I know a lot of our um, listeners, the first thing to do is jump into the idea of doing antibiotic therapy. But I guess my question to you is in these early signs of placements, obviously uh, there could be you know, the, a poor placement. Um, how do you normally address these early placement problems or issues? And again, I enjoy your
0: breakdown into three categories. If, and I think many of us believe that if we're seeing issues, uh, well, so what are issues? Uh, Suppuration. Um, is of concern bleeding on probing again you can get anything to bleed if you work at it but if you're seeing uh, signs of no osteointegration or minimal osteointegration are already radiolucency this is where I think the timeliness is important in other words early on take it out Uh, take it out so, implants that are, if you give me three time periods and all of them have the same conditions, especially uh, de integration those that are placed the, the earliest are, we have a tendency to take them out. Because if they are not osteointegrating within that three, if, and again, many of us believe this: if an implant is mobile, take it out. I know there are folks out there that probably want to try antibiotics, probably want to try holy water from the Vatican, (laughs) um, you know, but because no one wants to take the implant out because, you know, because what does it look like? First of all, you failed, which you haven't really. Uh, It looks like to yourself you failed. It looks like to the patient you failed. It looks like to your team you failed. But you're much better off early on taking the implant out. Uh, decorticating, grafting, or taking the implant out and putting a larger diameter in um, as a possibility. Uh, but I, I just cannot see utilizing antibiotics uh, for trying to make an implant osteo-integrate. It is, it, to me, it's like an apple and an orange. So I believe that the when you start to see within three to four or five months that uh, you're really seeing no osteointegration. It's better to just take it out, uh, either regraft or go in immediate with a larger diameter uh, implant. And uh, along those lines, now, if it's just suppuration, inflammation, but for the most part, it does appear like it is osteointegrating, well, then there we go into another phase of just managing it from the oral mucositis standpoint, uh, you know, relative to that. But at the same time, I see no place for a diode or an NDAG uh, laser in the management of anything implant wise. And there may be some out there that are saying, well, what about laser bacteria reduction? Well, it's a possibility, but as I stated before, you cannot let it get initiated. And I want to go to one other point when we were talking about diodes and hags. I can't tell you how many times someone has come up to me in an audience that did a second stage uncovery, uh, develop, you know, to get their emergence profiles and lose an implant by using a diode on a wattage, especially with continuous wavelength. And let's just make it very clear. My opinion is that anytime you use a diode laser and you're using it initiated or unfortunately initiated, you didn't intend for it to be, and you're on continuous, you're really doing a second stage uncovery with an electrosurge.
1: Right. <clears throat> the, um, so bottom line is the early stages are in there. They don't look good. Cut your losses, get them out and uh, just kind of plan and go forward from there. I know a lot of times, and I think that as a patient, they understand the fact that sometimes things, uh, you know, aren't going to go ahead and heal properly. And I think that that just getting in there and getting it out and just planning for the future is probably the best way to go. Of course, we have the next group of our peri-implantitis cases where they did show initial healing, osseointegration. they look good, everything's fine, but within, you know, kind of just a a few months of a placement, maybe up to about a year or so. uh, We start to end up seeing um, a little bit of separation, bleeding on probing. They're just not looking that great, maybe some possible early bone loss around them. So you know at the very beginning that this is a potential bigger problem. I think that you and I both agree that the earlier that we see and address these, uh, the more important it is to avoid future problems. So With that in mind, do you have a feeling on how to go ahead and and deal with this group of implants or or implants with peri-implantitis? Well, naturally,
0: when you're getting past the two-year and it's osteointegrated, you know, the other part about the six-month is the restorative. But now that you're after that two-year, they're going to be restored. And then one makes a, a very important decision. Is this mucositis or is this implantitis? Now that's not easily said as you know, from the standpoint of the difference, as you just mentioned is bone loss, but there are times, again, we mentioned this before, I think in the second podcast, there's times when you get a radiograph and it looks like that bone is exactly where you want it, but you have totally lost all the bone on the palatal, the lingual, or even sometimes the buckle, especially in the maxillary anterior area. So it takes a very judicious use of a periodontal probe. And this is sometimes when I'll use a plastic probe, especially if it's restored and I've got this large convexity to under anesthesia, to really go down and see if I can feel threads. And every now and then you can, you can literally feel those threads even when you thought that it was just mucositis. And in that case, where I have changed over the last 24 to 36 months is that I rarely ever manage any implantitis flatless. I manage all implantitis uh, surgically, at least with a mini flap so that we can see what is there. Because as we mentioned also in our past uh, uh, podcasts on etiology, you can't tell if there's cement down there unless you flap it. And there's been a lot of egg on face where folks have not flapped it, who have tried to do a conservative flapless approach to implantitis, real, not realizing that what was there was a large circumferential coating of resin. Uh, and that area was never going to resolve unless you opened it up, took a look at it and got that resin off. Now. I will say this, a good vote for removing resin cement on an implant is an erbium laser because the resin has water in it and it will come off very, very easy as the laser interaction with the water in the resin, just like when we remove uh, zirconium.
1: Right, I matter of fact, these are the cases that I, uh, I have to say that if I love to treat a certain case, these are the ones I enjoy the most because, like as you said, minim- minimal flap reflection, taking the laser in there, removing all the granulated tissue, all the irritated tissues, visually looking at the implant surface before it's gotten any worse. I find that we can get a lot of these uh, problems to turn around, to uh, look much better. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, take that downhill case and make it into a healing case. And I, uh, I get a lot of gratification on, on these types of cases. So the next group we're going to look at, of course, I call the most frustrating cases possible. The cases where they'd have been in there for about two to five years, uh, patients, uh, you start to start to okay, they have either some sensitivities, some discomfort with the implants, awareness of it. Uh, you start to notice that there's bleeding on probing radiographically. You start to see that there's been some, uh, some bone loss. Um, and it could be a little bit of bone loss or it could be a lot of bone loss around it, but ultimately you see that this group of, uh, of implants beginning to go downhill or fail. And of course, it's right about that time, as you know, that the patients will, um, once they have their implants in there for a couple of years, it's theirs, and they will not accept the fact that it will fail. But unfortunately that these are the ones that, that do tend to fail and, uh, are the most frustrating for not only the doctor, but for the patients too. So with this group of, of implants, do you feel ideologically that it is similar to the, the prior two cases, and/or do you feel that maybe there's a little bit more of a complexity regarding the etiology? And do you, um, I guess I say, do you alter your treatment plan, particularly the fact of utilizing the laser, um, and the oval treatment, figuring the fact that you pro- more likely do have calculus and/or titanium oxide? Um, on the implant surface. So can you give us your thoughts on how to deal with this uh, group of peri-implantitis cases? Well, with this group, I
0: agree. I think that this is a multivariate etiology uh, when you're looking at an implant after, you know, these uh, two, three, four, five years, and then they start to go downhill. And we are seeing that. Uh, My tendency, again, as we discussed in the prior podcast, is potentially uh, some metallosis, some titanium oxide. We are believing now that the microflora, uh, you know, can have an inflammatory effect and releasing certain, uh, you know, biochemical reactions, including acid, which could have an effect on the titanium oxide and its release and creating these giant cells uh, that are there. Uh, And and again, um, this is where also that, Occlusion uh, could be a component in that uh, long standing occlusal forces on a very dynamic uh, uh, tissue called bone uh, over time could be a, a significant issue. So, yes, there, there is a more complex uh, etiology here. Uh, and this always, uh, we're going to flap it. We're going to see exactly where the etiology is. I, you know we may not always know what it is, but there's one thing you can take to the bank. You don't get implantitis without something causing it. You know there's no such thing as you know spontaneous. Uh, something created that environment. And just like we mentioned before, the orthopedic surgeons, they also are you know are met with these challenges. Uh, They just have an easier way of getting around it in the fact that they always tell their patients, these will not last forever. We're going to need to do a revision. It's just a matter of time. And if you beat the system, then they come back and say, hey, guess what? You thought I would have to have this hip replaced again. Look at me now. But at least you set up some expectations that were much more realistic. So in this group, I do believe that you need to reflect the flap. And this is the time, Steve, we probably need to have a conversation about what do you want to do to the surface of the implant now that the flap is reflected? So I would throw it back to you. I mean, what are your thoughts when you see that titanium surface and you know, you've historically been through from the beginning. Um, What do you think we should be doing?
1: Wow. (laughs) Thanks for throwing it back. (laughs) Um, You know, honestly, is it my gut feeling and my honest feeling is, is that if we ultimately, I think the ultimate goal for most of us is we would like to at least attempt the possibility of regeneration. We realize that regeneration is not a predictable outcome. Um, It's kind of like one of those hit and miss but we're all looking for that potential regeneration. I'm a firm believer that the uh, if the implant surface isn't properly prepared, decontaminated, prepared, uh, then any any potential regeneration is, is basically is lost. Uh, I think that the, that the key for me for treating peer implant test cases is a, few, is a fewfold. Number one is making sure that the granulation tissue is, is adequately removed. And there's definitely times that, I'll see some, some granulation tissue and little lacunae that you try to take a a cure at and you can't get to, but utilizing the laser is far more effective and go ahead and removing it. Um, And in addition, like I said, is that just the preparation of the, of the implant surface to make sure it's healed, but also kind of the idea of getting adequate bleeding adequate cortical perforations. And then, and then also bone grafting. I think that uh, while it's probably not in this uh, venue for us to discuss all the different bone grafting materials. We could probably have a whole podcast on that by itself. But I think that what we found is most of the uh, clinicians who do bone grafting, there's a certain types of techniques. Uh, the materials that you use is based upon what you prefer to do, but uh, all in all, as I think that you kind of would feel and agree to is preparation of the site. But if you're going to do some bone grafting, get it so that the, uh, that the tissues, your flap is not doing compression on the bone graft materials more or less, uh, relax, and that's going to get the optimal regeneration. Uh, do you agree? Uh, yes, in
0: fact, uh, again, we I know that we I chatted about this before. In my mind, it's it's three D's whether it be perio or implantitis, but they have to be done exceptionally well with great access, and that is, uh, you mentioned degranulation. Uh, I firmly believe that in the detoxification of the implant surface, your objective is to get that surface as if it came right out of the package or out of the capsule. And to do that, everyone has come up with their own ideas. Uh, For me personally, I think it's also removing uh, titanium oxide that is on the implant surface. And you and I both have seen changes in the color of the of that implant when you're using the erbium chromium ysgg and then i always also go back with my airflow with erythritol uh, just to ensure other than that i don't think you need all the other stuff the citric acid and you know again the snake oil and the cotton swabs and going over and over i think that i know that if you and our studies show this uh, that if you use and Erbium Chromium YSGG, especially if you're using something like the side firing tip that allows you to be able to go into the pitch of the threads. And that is the trick. We mentioned this before, you know, what what is implantitis? Well, it's, it's furcations on steroids. It's circumferential furcations. So we see people spending 30 minutes doing one FERCA. When you've got four or five threads exposed, then how are you gonna get into the pitch? Anyone can get on the outside of the threads. Very few people can figure out how to get into the pitch and decontaminate that. And that's where I believe some of these lasers like the Erbium Chromium YSGG that has a side firing tip allows 90% of that energy to go straight into it. I still saw at the AAP meeting people using titanium brushes. And it's very simple. Just take an implant that's lost or you're not going to use. Put fingernail polish on it and then use a titanium brush and really see if, first of all, if the fingernail polish is getting out of there. But secondly, are you throwing titanium oxide all through the tissue? And that's why I am not a fan of implantoplasty. because you're going to throw all of the, what I consider to be not just titanium oxide particulates, you know, out into the tissue. So in the decortication part, this is where you've got to remove some of that bone that sometimes you see, you see bone coronal um, on the threads and below it is a complete blown out circumferential defect. Well, I take that bone off there because I'm, I feel it's necrotic bone or it's going to be necrotic. It's just stuck there physically. So it is taxing to do it, but you've got to reflect a flap. And then I always say the augmentation that you use is up to you. Um, people always say to me, well, what should I use? Well, we don't know. Uh, I, I, there's no doubt that using something like a demineralized freeze stride and putting with Indigain or uh, Gym 21, uh, that's gonna be the gold standard. Uh, you can't do better than that. Do you put a membrane over it? In my mind, is totally dependent upon whether, as you mentioned about the flap, uh, if I feel that I can't contain the grafting, then I'm going to put a membrane over it. If I feel that uh, it's, you know, these torturous three wall, that bone is never going to come out, you know, then I'm not going to put a membrane over it. I uh, went in doubt, put a membrane on it. Uh, it should be a membrane, however, that's going to be, as far as cross-linking, uh, it should be very slow to turn over so that you can ensure that your bone underneath there is going to have the maturation point to osteo
1: You know, you brought up a very good point about the, uh, the implant surface. But I think that uh, so many times, you know, we, we look at an implant surface like scaling and root planing, where we just go in there, we quickly go ahead and scale it off, doing actually proper debridement of the implant takes time. It's not one of those things that you just kind of take your laser, whatever to and kind of do the magic wand. It, it takes a lot of time, a lot of um, kind of attention to go ahead and make sure that all the soft deposits, hard deposits are off. And there are times I'll, I'll kind of relook at it and kind of go over the surface again. So I think that the most important thing is this is a time that you just don't kind of slow down on. It's funny because regarding uh, grafting, you and I've always had said, you know, my feeling is that if I ever have a situation where it looks like it failed, I always go back to basic biology and blood supply. I think that's the main thing. So uh, obviously when it comes down to basic uh, grafting around the implants themselves, I think the most important thing is just keep biology in mind. You know, what is, what are we trying to accomplish? What are we trying to do and be kind to the body, be, be good to the cells and they'll be good to you. So Anyway, um, the last so, group. You know, yes.
0: it, 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 you bring up the point about, about it being meticulous. And same thing with periodontitis. When I see folks being able to save particular teeth that others can't, uh, every now and then we can't. But when I see folks that have the highest rate of, of saving and including myself, when I've taken the time, when you take the time, to try to put that tooth back to where it's not a foreign body when you try to put the implant, but it takes time and it takes loops and it takes good light and it takes good instrumentation. Uh, but it, it takes time with these implants. I mean, God be with you. These defects are so tortuous. They're like caverns they're caves, uh, you know, they intercommunicate, you, you see dehiscences in the bone, you see fenestrations. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen bony fenestrations on these implants. So, you know, that I never, never see with teeth. So it, it's just taking time.
1: I think, like you said, that's why visualization of the defect is so important, why we have to flap and really look at these types of cases. Yeah, you, you can, uh, can't do quick therapy on these types of cases. Which brings us to their last group—the ones the implants that have been in for, let's say, over five years. Uh, been there for quite a while, been happy as a clam, and all of a sudden start to develop problems with us. Uh, with with us, um, the bone bone loss around the threads, bone loss around the implant, separation, bleeding, and some of these these defects uh, do tend to either be slow, moderate, uh, some of which. Are even chronic, and when you look at these, uh, like I have referrals of uh, these patients with perimplantitis, and I'll look at all this bone loss around the implants. My first question is, how long has it has that defect been there? And I'll look, and there's a history of it. And there's well corticated bone. So, my question for you would end up being, in these kind of long standing cases, do you have a certain protocol that you look at, or things that you do? Do you tend to treat the chronic cases, the same as you would treat the acute cases. How do you normally go ahead and, uh, and deal with these, uh, these older generation, the geriatric implants uh, that are developing problems?
0: Well, it's, a, it's an excellent perception of asking this kind of question because it really depends upon what I call diagnosis and prognosis. Diagnosis is what it looks like right now. Prognosis is what's going to happen. And if you look in medicine, if you're seeing a physician and they say, you know, you have stage four squamous cell, you don't really care. That's the diagnosis. What you care about is how long do I have? And the same thing is the case here. Because we know as a fact that the loss of integration, the loss of osseous is much more episodic. Than it is in periodontitis, it becomes incredibly important that we take radiographs and try to standardize them as much as possible. And by doing that, we can possibly note progression if we see it on the you know the mesial or distal. So, in in my mind, record keeping on this is absolutely. Essential, And you don't have that sometimes as a periodontist, do you? With a referring dentist that says to you, hey, uh, can you fix this? Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, how long has it been in there? What was the radiograph? I mean, uh, there are times I I know I drive uh, our periodontal residents crazy at the University of Florida because the first time they show me something, I say, okay, uh, let's go back into the hard drive, the computer, in the cloud, and let's find every single radiograph that's been taken since this thing was placed. Uh, and you can't always do that. But if you've got it, you've got to be looking at that because that's where the prognosis is, not the diagnosis. So, and I mentioned this before, I am suggesting that it doesn't really matter. You've got to flap it. You've got to see what's there, and you've got to deal with it. If you have bone loss around even the first thread, because you know what, Steve? The alternative is so grave that you just can't take a chance like you can with a natural tooth. Um, You know, we could have a podcast just on patient backlash, which, by the way, someone just sent me a YouTube on a Arizona uh, television station doing a, a whole thing on implant failure and creating, uh, f- uh, you know, medical issues with patients, and we not being clear about how long they're going to last. These were, by the way, all on four all on six cases, and so. If we're not careful, we're going to see a backlash, which by the way is going to create the alternative, which is, which I heard also at the AAP, save the teeth. You know, save the teeth. So from this standpoint of that five year or greater, I take no chances, but again, it sort of ups the game on my mind as far as occlusion goes. Because I think you see more of you, you have just my logic tells me long-standing occlusal forces not directed towards the long axis, uh, possibly over time could create those kinds of issues.
1: Right, you know it, it, I think the idea of looking at all aspects, as we had already said, of uh, you know the idea of the etiology, look at all aspects of it and start to address them and. In true confession, I will have to say, are you wearing your collar right now? Um, I was actually one of those people that used to say, we'll just watch and monitor it. You know, if I happen Correct. to see a defect, if I had a little bit of bleeding on probing, because in my th- mind and my thought at that time was I could create more harm or damage by exposing the bone and losing some bone around the, the implant and threads. And to be honest with you, I've changed that view and changed that right. philosophy. I've, I've gotten Me down too. to, yeah, I've gotten to the point that, I mean, if I have direct access that I can do a minimal reflection, kind of utilizing the uh, the um, urban chromium YSGG to kind of clean out the defects. But I think that looking at that implant service and verifying that there isn't any hard deposits, um, oxide deposit, that the tissues are healthy, at least to make sure that everything is, is healthy as best that I could get it. I think like you're saying is, is very important. And, and I think that watching these cases is no longer an option for us. We really do need to go ahead and look at them and evaluate them and see what we have going on. So. Yeah, you know, and at the
0: the AAP meeting, uh, we were hearing, uh, you know, people speaking from the podium that now, you know, 15, 20, 25% of their practice is implantitis, which is substantial. When you think back in the day when we said, ah, you know, 5% failure, 2% failure, I'm not saying it, you know, but again, uh, we are reaching an epidemic portion, which is why this series of podcasts I know is so critical for us moving
1: forward. And you had made a comment about the idea of saving the teeth. You know, I mean, in the past, you know, the whole goal of pair is save the tooth, no matter what you do, save the tooth. And when implants came out, we said, get rid of the tooth, let's put in the implant. Well, I think more and more paradox like in the idea of maybe we should save these teeth for a little bit longer period of time than, yeah, uh, than absolutely. what we had. And, So we're finally getting back into the idea of being Peridotis. So I have one final question for you, Sam, to kind of conclude uh, today's uh, podcast. Um, So with your culinary expertise, if you were stuck on a deserted island with only one seasoning, what would it be?
0: Well, I will tell you what I have used for several years. And you're going to chuckle. But there's a seasoning out of in a Plot, Nolens, Louisiana. It's called Slap Yama. <laughs> and you think, I'm kidding you. <laughs> I am not kidding you. It is a wonderful seasoning. You can put it on anything, Steve. And when you're cooking for the kids in the morning, yeah, uh, you can sprinkle this on and I prom- promise you it'll be a skip to the step, but it's called Slap Your Mama. S-L-A-P, not your, ya, Y-A, mama.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure that we're going to see a huge increase in purchases on uh, Amazon for, uh, for this particular season. And to be honest with you, like, as soon as we're done with this podcast, I'm going to go ahead and order some right away because I am definitely curious because I know you and you're a very picky person when it comes down towards cooking and seasoning and the fact that you're recommending this. Um, that I, I'm going to have to pick this up and go ahead and see what it's like. I'm, uh, I'm curious to see what my kids' eggs will taste like uh, tomorrow morning. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, I, I know it It sounds like I'm a little facetious, but no, it is an incredible seasoning for everything. And if I was on that deserted island, I would make sure that I have gallons of it before uh, I cooked anything, including uh, the coconut. It probably, You could probably put it on coconut for all I know, but
1: Tell you what, I know how that tastes. My wife loves coconut. That's the first thing we're putting it on. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure it's
0: gonna work on the coconut.
1: So.
0: <laughs> but you can't lose on anything else
1: with it, so. <laughs> That's that sounds great. Thanks, Sam. So anyway, Sam, thank you again for joining us and providing some very, very, very useful and informative and insightful information on this very important, uh, subject. And, um, I hope that our listeners got a lot of information again, thanks for everyone for listening to the series on period Um, I, I hope you found it enlightening and informative, and I hope that all of you would join us next time for a yet to be determined hot dental topic. Thank you again for listening. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Sam.
0: Thanks for joining us for another Advancing Dentistry Podcast. Opinions expressed are those of individual doctors and do not necessarily represent Biolace. Please refer to your individual state governing bodies for laws pertaining to laser usage. To learn more about Waterlace All-Tissue and Epic Diode Laser Technology,
1: visit Biolace.com forward slash podcast.